Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue the three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, and times, and half a time, but the court shall be seated. And they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. Even as we prayed, remember, I want you to understand something, that God's dealing with earthlings, with this planet and the people who occupy this planet, is focused on two big things. Number one, his plan, and number two, his people. And so when it says the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom, wise people, understanding and knowledgeable people will automatically say, well, there's been lots of kingdoms. There have been Babylonian kingdoms and, and Chinese kingdoms and Central and South American kingdoms. What is it about these kingdoms and these unfolding kingdoms that play such an important and pivotal role? It is because God is talking to us about his plan and his people. It's from the perspective of God's dealing with humanity. In Daniel chapter 7 and 8, Daniel receives two visions of the unfolding of world Gentile powers. These visions take place in the first and the third years of the reign of Belshazzar, who is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar during the ebbing final moments, if you will, of that ascendant Babylonian empire. So in the beginning of the chapter, Daniel sees in a vision four beast-like creatures. The first was like a lion with wings in verses 1 through 4. The second was a beast with bloody ribs, a bear-like creature creature in verse 5. The third was a leopard-like creature with four heads and four sets of wings in verses 7 and 8. And the final creature, terrifying and dreadful, had ten horns. An emerging horn is seen in the vision. Three horns are ripped out by an ever-increasing, emerging terrifying, threatening horn. Daniel then sees a vision of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man in verses 9 and 10. The Ancient of Days is seated on a fiery throne and there is a river of fire that's flowing from the throne. He's attended by innumerable angels, and then he sees tens of millions of millions of millions of people where judgment takes place. 
And the fourth beast is cast into a burning lake of fire in verses 11 and 12. And the information that follows is an explanation and then an interpretation of those four beasts in verses 15 through 18. This information, again, we discover that the four beasts represent four kings and four kingdoms. These will be replaced by a fifth kingdom. An eternal, secured by the ancient of days, and then given to the Son of Man in verse 14. So Daniel wants to know, he wants to know more information about this fourth beast. He wants to understand how this cruel creature is given the ability to conquer the world and then consume the earth. He wants to know more about the little horn that plays such a prominent role in the future world and the final conflict and the Jewish people in verses 19 through 22. An angelic creature reveals three facts about this fourth beast. Number one, He's going to devour the whole world, verses 23 and 24. Number two, he's going to defy the most high God in verse 25. Number three, it will be destroyed by the most high God, verses 26 and 27. The Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus is going to return one day. In glory. Many of you are familiar with the teachings of the Bible concerning the rapture of the church and the coming of Jesus, but some of you may be hearing this for the very first time. Maybe you're curious about what the Bible says about the events that will unfold, that will lead to this final day, what Chuck Smith called the final curtain. We're told that no one knows the day or the hour of Christ's return in Matthew 24, verse 36. These from the words of Jesus himself. But the Bible gives us unmistakable clues concerning the unfolding of this future. So there are three kingdoms that have come and gone, even a fourth kingdom. And Daniel sees this fourth kingdom in what is the far future. It's global. It's hostile to God and God's people. And it's destined to be destroyed by the person of Jesus Christ. Look again in verse 23. The fourth beast devours the earth. Thus he said the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. Which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. And shall devour the whole earth. Trample it. Break it to pieces. The ten horns are ten kings. Who shall arise from this kingdom. The fourth kingdom. And another shall rise after them. That seems to indicate after the rising of the ten horns, he shall be different from the first ones. In what sense? He is different. Is he different from the first beasts? Or is it different from the first horns? In the text, it seems to be these kings are arising and somehow this king is different from every other king. He subdues three of the kings. So the fourth beast we discover is a fourth kingdom with a most unusual king. Daniel is told that this kingdom is different not only from the other kingdoms but from the other kings. In what way? That's what we should ask. In what way are they going to be different? They're going to be different in scope. They're going to be different in power. They're going to be different in the distribution of that power. They're going to be different in leadership. And so we discover the ten horns are ten kings which arise or emerge from this kingdom. 
In order to identify that, remember we have to have some understanding of what has unfolded. Remember the statue in chapter 2 where, Bab, where the King Nebuchadnezzar sees a vision of a statue with a head of gold, with chest of silver, with a belly of bronze and legs of iron. And we discovered that that first head is Babylon, that these, this chest of silver is the, the, the Medo-Persian Empire. And the belly of bronze, Greece, and the legs of iron, Rome. We see this unfolding of the kingdoms, but then it's, it would appear that one of the kingdoms is past, but it's also future. And so this has caused many people to suggest that the fourth appear, a kingdom appears in the past as the Roman Empire and in the future at, of what seems to be a revived Roman Empire. Not everybody holds that view. But Daniel points out, and another shall rise after them in verse 24, and that this creation is a coalition of ten sovereigns, Ten kings, ten kingdoms, and the rise of this Antichrist figure takes place, listen carefully, after the rise, the coalition, the formation of these ten kings and kingdoms. He shall be different from the first ones. Again, in what way? Stephen Miller in his commentary says, he will be more intelligent, more powerful, more arrogant, unquote. And I think that that's right. And so when you, you hear people foolishly saying, I think so-and-so is the Antichrist. In my lifetime, in my lifetime, there have been so many people who have been guessed, well, maybe it's Richard Nixon. <laughs> no. Maybe it's Henry Kissinger. Maybe it's every president who has come after uh, John F. Kennedy. Every single generation seems to pick their own pet antichrist. In, in, in recent years, even people have, have been suggested, usually it's a pope or a leader or someone else. And then I remind them, whoever this person is, he is an intellectual genius, you judge. He is a military genius, you judge. This person has the persuasive powers of perhaps the most gifted person who's ever lived, you judge. The little horn is mentioned in verse 8, verse 11, verse 20, verse 22. Remember earlier he's identified as a person. Now he's identified as a king. And so what does it mean that he will subdue three of these kings? It would appear that not all the nations in the confederation are on board with this new world agenda. Now I want you to think about this. If this is a global empire and if this empire surrounds the earth, it would seem that at some point in the not too distant future, at least in my view, is that there is going to be a move towards globalization, global commerce, global economy, global interaction, and that the earth, the planet earth, as you understand it, is going to be separated into regions. Are these regions going to be from east to west or north to south? I don't know how the confederations are going to unfold, but apparently there are three of these global empires that will resist the Antichrist power. He will, they will resist his agenda, and apparently, make no mistake about it, they're going to be subdued by force. And so this would, this causes me to think at least of two things. Number one, that in the future, 
there's going to be a globalization that takes place. In the future, there's going to be regions or areas that resist and reject this Antichrist figure. And number two, that this Antichrist figure will have unprecedented access to military means. Because apparently, these kingdoms aren't subdued by reason by logic, or by ideological persuasion. They're militarily subdued. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, it says, He comes conquering and to conquer. People living in that day will say, like Revelation chapter 13, verse 4, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The conclusion is no one. The fourth beast defies the most high God. Look what it says in verse 25. He shall speak pompous words against the most high, shall persecute the saints of the most high, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for... A time, times, half a time. This Antichrist figure speaks, and when he opens his mouth, he speaks blasphemy. In other words, it would appear that whatever speech that he makes and whatever he says, it is directed towards the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, he is aggressive in his anti-God rhetoric. And again, once again, we're informed of this Antichrist figure's blasphemies. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, the apostle John writes, quote, and he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. This gives us a clue of what's meant by time, times, and half a time. Verse 6 of Revelation chapter 13, verse 6, it says, Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. You'll remember that in the New Testament, Jesus was accused of... Blasphemy. Why? The religious leader said, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be a god or the god. So whatever this blasphemy is, it seems to be rooted and grounded, not just in a statement concerning what he may or may not believe about the God of heaven, but what he believes about himself. Daniel doesn't give us the details. It says he, in, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 6, he opens his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name. Here's what we're told. He blasphemes his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So whatever this rhetoric is and whatever the statement that is made, it is directed towards God it's directed towards the tabernacle, which seems to indicate a temple where God dwells or is worshipped. And then the occupants of some sort of celestial court, the Antichrist figure in the book of Revelation is going to demand worship of himself, which is in effect the ultimate form of blasphemy. Because a moment a person invites you to look to them, to trust them, to rely on them, to believe on them for mercy, food, existence, this person is going to present himself to the world as the savior as the one who will deliver them from what is perceived to be global enemies. The Antichrist figure hates 
God. And this Antichrist figure hates the God of the Bible, and then he expresses that hatred through the persecution of the people who are represented in the Bible. And thus you have that reoccurring name that appears both in Daniel chapter 7 and in Daniel chapter 13, the saints. This being is anti-Jew, anti-Christian. The Antichrist figure will seek out specific ways to persecute them and ultimately to destroy them. And I want to draw your attention to that word persecute in the text. It's sometimes translated oppress. It translates an Aramaic word, yabale. Literally, this was a word that was used in the Aramaic language to express a picture of something that you wear away, that you wear away until you finally wear it out. It's sort of like a garment that you wear over and over again. I, I remember seeing some people last week and they were very, very young and I couldn't help but notice my clothes are older than they are. And they said, it's time for new clothes for you. Guess what? The 70s, they've come and gone. People say what, what used to be in style will come back. It's not true. <laughs> it's interesting to me that in the current and contemporary culture, young people wear jeans that are already torn up. I go, wow, you know, isn't it time to get new jeans? No, no, it's supposed to look like this. In other words, they purchase fabric that's already worn out. But this is that picture. It isn't where you take something and you just simply destroy it. It's where you use it and abuse it. You use it and abuse it. You use it and abuse it. And this is the picture of this coming Antichrist figure who wears away at the people of God in a purposeful, planned destruction. We're given a picture of torment, of harassment, of ever-increasing punishment for the people of God. And so in this future kingdom, religious freedom is at first addressed, diminished, until it ceases to exist. That is, until it is abolished. That's what we see when we get to Daniel chapter 9, verse 6. And that's what the Antichrist figure will do. It will begin and then continue with an attack on religious freedom. And this is why, again, we resist people and laws and governments that resist religious freedom. We want to exercise our religious freedom. We want to be able to love and serve and believe and trust Jesus According to the Bible, there's going to be an ever-increasing diminishment of religious freedom, an ever-increasing persecution. The Antichrist figure knows, knows, knows that human beings are hardwired to worship. The Antichrist figure knows that we're created in the image of God, a God that he denies. So he's going to fabricate a system of worship that makes himself and his agenda the ultimate object of universal desire. And so why does the Antichrist figure hate the saints and persecute the saints? I'm going to suggest to you it's because the people of God are going to oppose his tactics and his agenda. And the Antichrist figure will be inspired by Satan. He will be energized by Satan. He loves what Satan loves and he hates what God hates. 
And so now we understand why he hates you so much. Remember what I said to you earlier? God sees everything in terms of two things. His plan and his people. He has a plan and he has a people. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, when he's getting ready to face a cruel crucifixion, you'll remember that he was taken by night. And he told his disciples, he said, the day is coming to an end. The night is falling. There's going to come a time when people can't work. There's going to come a time when Satan will be given what looks like the upper hand. A limited victory. But it will only be for a moment. It will only be for a moment. Whatever advantages the unbeliever, the make-believer has, it won't last forever. How long will he prevail against the saints? Daniel writes, a time, times, half a time. In Revelation, John gives that number as 42 months, Revelation 13.5. Kyle, of, of the famous Kyle and Delish uh, um, scholarship, argues the phrase is symbolic of an indeterminate or an indefinite time, but that makes no sense to me. The argument does not seem to be persuasive. Why is this more likely a period of one and then two and then a half, a period of three and one half years. Because later in Daniel chapter 12, verse 14, we see that a duration is given to an Antichrist figure of 1,260 days or three and a half years. The period of three and a half is used in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, where a covenant is made in this middle of this period of seven, it would seem that God has, has judged the world and Israel and that he has done it in a series of sevens. When we get to Daniel chapter nine, we're going to look more carefully at that, but it would seem that in the middle of Daniel's 70th week, the ascendancy of this beast-like creature is going to reach its aperture or pinnacle and it is going to have what looks like unprecedented opportunity to persecute and purge the people of God. We're not told when the Antichrist rise to power takes place, but it appears to take place in the context of a world that's become global in its, in its reach. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that in the past, this globalization would have been very, very difficult. That we stand on the precipice, if you will, of a world that could very easily be pushed in this direction by just a very few key issues. In my lifetime, I am living in a world that has, in my lifetime, the ability to destroy the entire world, to communicate with the entire world, to map the entire world, to interact with the entire world. Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 17, Daniel's vision seems to be outlined and then John the Apostle in the book of Revelation begins to pencil in the details. The elaborate details that are given seem to suggest that the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and the wicked beast and the evil antichrist figure of Revelation are exactly the same character. And you don't have to be an FBI profiler to connect the dots. In brief, let me tell you a little bit about those dots. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Revelation. I want you to turn to chapter 13. I'm going to briefly read the passage and then I'm going to point out some things to you. 
In chapter 13, verse 1, then I, that's the apostle John, stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads. Remember, this is the heads less the three heads that are already gone. And ten horns. Really? Seven heads, but ten horns. In what sense? Apparently, these are now seven regions that share this divvied up power between the ten horns. And on his horns, ten crowns. And on his heads, plural, a blasphemous name, singular. Apparently, on each of these heads is a name that stands in opposition to the God of heaven. Verse 2, now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war against him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Both books, Daniel and Revelation, employ the same symbolism. A beast comes out of the sea in verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 13. The description of the final kingdom given in Daniel and Revelation reveal a global leader who opposes God and persecutes the saints. Daniel chapter 7 verse 25. Revelation chapter 13 verse 7. Both beasts have ten horns. Daniel 7, verse 7 and 20, and then 24. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And then Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. And and again in verse 12 and verse 16. Both empires have a great power for three and one half years. Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. Both empires are destroyed when Jesus shows up and establishes his kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. Revelation 19, 19. So Revelation 13 describes the beast out of the, out of the sea. His appearance in verses 1 and 2. His ten horns, each with a crown. Seven heads, each with a blasphemous name. Now I want you to remember... He looks like a leopard with feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. I want you to think about that for just a moment. And you might think, John's description is exactly the opposite of Daniel's description. Daniel starts with a lion that goes to a bear that becomes a leopard that becomes an unidentifiable creature. In John's vision, he sees it exactly the opposite. Why? Because Daniel is looking into the future. And John is looking at the past. Daniel sees what will happen. John reveals in his own mind, in his vision, from the perspective of heaven, what is already past. 
The beast's authority comes from Satan himself in chapter 13, verse 2 of Revelation. We see a glimpse of a possible assassination in chapter 13, verse 3 at the end of the verse, verse 4, and then verse 8, which has caused some people to believe whoever this figure is, there is going to be an assassination attempt on his life. He will receive a mortal wound. And apparently he will recover Or according to some scholars, he will be killed and come back to life in some sort of mock resurrection, some sort of blasphemous parody of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. John mentions this wound three times in chapter 13. In verse 3, in verse 12, in verse 14. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 7 and 17, 8, we're told that this beast comes out of a disgusting, dark pit, which is suggestive of some sort of demonic reanimation of this corpse whoever he is whatever he is this beast is a counterfeit Christ and like Judas he's called the son of perdition in John chapter 17 verse 12 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 So does the Bible paint a picture of a man? Yes. A man who becomes a king? Yes. Of a worldwide coalition? At the beginning. But there is resistance. There is rebellion. Which he will squash. And so some scholars believe this Antichrist figure will pretend obedience to mock religion but sometime in the middle of the tribulation a confederation of eastern bloc countries will invade the middle east this according to some people interpretation of ezekiel chapter 37 and 38 forcing this antichrist figure to come to the rescue of the jews but when the beast arrives in the middle east he discovers that god himself has defeated this sort of Eastern Bloc Russian coalition that attempts to conquer and swallow Israel itself. And apparently it's at this point that the beast will abandon all pretense and will destroy the apostate church in Revelation 17 will set himself up as the unique, specific, singular ruler of the world. And Satan gives the beast power, according to the Bible, to perform signs and wonders in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, so that it would seem that his supernatural power is invincible. And that God will allow a strong delusion to cover and blanket the unbelieving world. People will not receive Christ, but they will fall in love with this figure. And according to the Bible, they will believe the lie. And what is the lie? The ultimate lie is that Jesus isn't the Lord. The ultimate lie is Jesus never came. And if he did, he died. And if he died, he's still dead. And if he said he's coming back, it's a lie. So forces join together and say, Jesus isn't who he says he is. He didn't do what the Bible says he did. And he's certainly not going to keep his promises in the future. But according to the book of Daniel, and according to the book of Revelation... Everything that the Bible says about Jesus is true. Everything that the Bible says about the future is true. He persecutes the saints. He will conquer the saints in chapter 13 of Revelation and here in the book of Daniel. The book of Revelation 
points to a time and exhorts the saints to be patient, to exercise endurance, to be faithful to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's going to be an ever-increasing difficulty that will come about that's prefaced by your trials and your troubles and your sufferings and your circumstances. You see, in suffering and in trial, Satan tries to make you impatient with God's plans and God's purposes. If you've ever been in pain, a lot of pain, it has the strongest voice. It makes the loudest noise. It drowns out the promises of the Bible. And this is why in the midst of pain, heartache, suffering, and difficulty, the Bible urges us to be prepared, to endure suffering, to be faithful, And we see in the fourth beast destroyed by the Most High. Look what it says in verse 26. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. The celestial court is called to order. The charges are outlined. The case is made. The verdict is rendered. In that single sentence, we see Satan destroyed. And I know what you want. You're going, wait, I want to know more about that part. And of course you do. I want to draw your attention to that word dominion. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion. The Aramaic word is provocative. It's the Aramaic word sultan. You know that word. If you've ever visited the Middle East and you think of principalities and dominions, the person who's a ruler in a particular area is called the sultan. comes from this word. It means the right to exercise power and authority, but the court is seated. They will take away his sultan. The God of this world, small g, the prince of the power of the air, his ability to torment you and for you to experience suffering, his ability to tell lies, his ability to hurt and maim will be taken away and destroyed forever. The text literally reads to destroy and to destroy to the forever. It's particularly strong in the original language, in its emphasis. In verse 27, it says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions, same word, shall serve him and obey him. There is no power. There is no authority. There is no no ability but that will one day bow down to Jesus and I often wonder whether Paul was reading this verse when in prison he thought and wrote to the Philippians he said that there will come a time that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God Human rule, apart from God, will be over. Daniel reveals that rule in some sense is given to the people, to the saints of the Most High. I'm going to suggest to you the kingdom of the triumphant Messiah fills the earth. The millennial kingdom is inaugurated. War has ceased. Peace is present. Justice is served. 
And the prophecy of Jesus is fully and finally fulfilled. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And that's exactly what will happen. Daniel reveals that the rule in some sense is given to the people. Who are these people? These are the saints. Who are these saints? These are the people of God. Specifically, who are we talking about? We're talking about the people of God in the past, and the people of God in the present, and the people of God in the future. And now you begin to see that everything, everything, everything is according to God's plan and is directed towards God's people. In verse 28, it says, This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed. The picture in the text is the blood has drained from his face. He's literally weak and overcome with the visions, but I kept the matter in my heart. So how does Daniel conclude the substance of this first vision? He's deeply disturbed. The prophet has witnessed the rise and fall of all future kingdoms. He has witnessed the, the persecution and the suffering of the people of God. He has seen the Messiah intervene and destroy the works of this wicked beast that stands in opposition to God. Daniel isn't given a clear picture of when all of these things occur. And so he decides to keep the matter to himself. This should cause you to pause in the text and speak to it again. You should say to the text, Daniel, where are your friends? We're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah that we meet in chapter 1, verse 7. Where are they? Are they dead? Are they gone? Are they not a part of his life anymore? Doesn't he have someone, anyone, that he can confide in? That he can speak to? That he can process this information? Why is there no one whom Daniel could share this vision And why does he choose to share it now? Why does he write it down? Why does he give it to every future generation? Why does he even give it to you? It may be that the phrase could mean that he decided to think long and hard about what he has just witnessed. Which tells me that we need to think long and hard about what we've just read. What does this prophecy mean? Well, we know it must mean that God is sovereign. Belshazzar neither embraces or believes in Daniel's God. The wicked ruler who will come will con accumulate considerable resources. He will accumulate his resources to oppose and persecute the people of God. And so we will pool our resources to encourage and minister and love the people of God and oppose the plan of Satan. One day, a court's going to be seated. A judge is going to occupy the heavenly bench. And a judgment is going to be rendered. Let's go back to the very verse, verse of our study. Remember in verse... 23, it says, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. 
What does that say to you? The conflict will continue. The conflict will unfold on the earth. Our earth is the chosen site for the battle between good and evil. This planet is the place that has been set aside in the universe to determine what will happen to the kings and kingdoms, but also what will happen to you. It's this place. It's this planet where a virgin will give birth to a son. He will be born at exactly the right moment in order to fulfill God's exact plan. We live in the place where the conflict will be fully and finally resolved. That's why I urge you each and every week to make sure that the conflict is resolved in your own heart. Things won't end well for the followers of the beast. They will become the object of God's judgment and punishment. And you will be the object of his love, of his grace, and of his mercy. Both Daniel and Revelation give us glimpses into this final moment, this final chapter. The dark clouds will increase. Persecution and suffering is on the horizon. But there are three things that we can know for certain. Number one, Jesus is coming back. Never forget it. He will judge the wicked leader of the final global government. It will happen. Number two, the evil plans and powers of Satan and his subjects are doomed before Christ. And number three, the Lord promises a wonderful future for everyone who believes in him and loves him and trusts him. I know it's so difficult especially when you're experiencing trial and suffering. And you say, Lord, what about now? What about now? And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient. I'll give you what you need. I'll give you strength and comfort and encouragement. And I'll walk you into the future that I've set aside just for you. So what do we know? Jesus is coming back. What do we know? Satan's going to eventually be destroyed. What do we know? His promises are going to be kept. This vision closes, but we're about to see the second vision unfold in the book of Daniel. Do you want to know a little bit more about what might happen in the not-too-distant future? Stay with me. Lord, thanks for this time. Thanks for your promises. Lord, we pray that it wouldn't just simply be some sort of Christian platitude, but that we would cultivate an attitude of expectation and hope and encouragement that we will continue to pray for one another that we'll continue to encourage one another, that we'll continue to support one another, that we will continue to walk into the future that God has set aside for us. In Jesus' name, amen.